I'm Jacob Schatz, and I'm taking you all on a trip to the fair. This is Talking Atlas. Hello and welcome back to Talking Atlas. At time of recording, we have received the awesome news that we are getting a Ravnica campaign book for Dungeons and Dragons. So there's no better time for me to dip back into the D&D well. Previously on this series, I talked about a campaign that I am currently running, which I have pithily titled We Were Gods Once. It's a reimagining of Magic the Gathering for a set of four players that have never played Magic before. Last time, I talked about some of the roles that a dungeon master has to take on when managing a group of players. Today, I'd like to go in-depth on one of the biggest, most convoluted parts of being a game master, and that is world building. World building is one of the reasons that a lot of GMs take on the role of being a GM. They build worlds in their spare time, and they want to have people go in and play around in those worlds. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of cases where your priorities can get out of whack when you are world building. And this is mostly because when you're world building for yourself, you have different expectations than when you're world building for other people. We talked about this a lot when we had Titus Lunter on as a guest. When he builds worlds visually for magic, there are some goals that he has set for himself and some goals that his bosses have set for him. You're not going to have an audience of millions if you're a game master, unless maybe you're Matt Mercer, in which case, oh my god, Matt Mercer listens to my show. But for the most part, you're probably not going to have millions of people that you're trying to sell your game to. You're going to have three to five. And with that in mind, you have to have some ideas of what parts of your world you should be building. Specifically today, I'm going to look at the world of Kaladesh as an example, and some tips and tricks that I used to help turn Kaladesh into a setting that my players could play, and even more specifically, the kinds of things that you should worry about when you're building a world for your first session. Let's start off by talking about the base material that you are building your world out of. As I said before, some DMs, in fact a lot of DMs, like to build their world completely from scratch. They have a personal setting that they've been working on for a while, or they even say to themselves as they're setting up their game, I'm just going to make a whole world all by myself. The typical parlance for this is a homebrew campaign. You're not taking any established material, you are making up the story and the setting all on your lonesome. And this is great. I would say most campaigns that are played privately among friends have at least some amounts of homebrew elements in them, if not completely created as a homebrew setting. And one of the reasons that people do this is because it gives you maximum freedom as a game master. In the mechanics, you are the one who gets to decide what happens. But when you're homebrewing a campaign, you get to decide that for everything. You can tailor-make your villains, your cities, your landscapes, your monsters. You can do whatever you want. But those of you who usually come here for magic might remember Mark Rosewater's creed, Restrictions Breed Creativity. And when you don't have any restrictions on what you're doing, it can be a little tough to decide what to do. Choice paralysis is real, and when your choices are anything and everything, it can be hard to make a cohesive whole from an unlimited box of parts. Not only that, but no matter what you decide, you are going to shoulder a lot of the work putting this together. 
You're going to have to come up with stat blocks for everything. You're going to have to figure out names of NPCs and cultures of regions. And again, this is not necessarily a downside. Some people revel in this stuff. The trick is that your players are not going to interact with everything that you come up with. And not only that, but you have to make all of the plans. And if there's one thing that players are really good at doing, it's finding holes in your plans. You want to create a world for your players that is not necessarily realistic, but believable. And one of the key elements of that is making sure that your backdrop is functional, but not too inviting. What I mean by that is, you don't want to railroad your players, especially if you're in a homebrew campaign. I'll get to more scripted campaigns in a little while here, but in scripted campaigns, the players kind of have an understanding that there is a story that they're supposed to be sticking to. There's a little bit of expectations there. In a homebrewed campaign, there's not as much of that expectation on the player's part. So particularly, we shall politely say, rambunctious players might try to find the seams of your world as you present it to them. In a homebrew campaign, your goal should be to give the players reasons to stick around the part of the world that you are giving them. You have a lot of the world in your back pocket, but you should focus on the part of the world that is meaningful to the story and to the plot that you're trying to develop, and meaningful to the characters as well as the players. I also recommend if you're doing a homebrew campaign not to open up the world too early. Don't just drop the players into something on the scale of a country and give them free reign to go anywhere in the world. Part of this is because they don't know about your world yet. So if you give them free reign, they're going to have to make decisions about where they're going in the world, and a lot of that is going to be asking you questions about what these things are and why my character should care about this and weighing options in a way that is completely out of character. Your story is going to be built around action. So keep the action limited to a small area, give them reasons to stick around and talk to the people that are important to your plot. This is different than railroading. This is distinct from railroading. Railroading is a derogatory term that players use when they feel like they are being put on rails, that they don't have any agency in the plot. When you do a homebrew campaign, it is your duty to create scenarios where the players feel like they have agency within that limited area, that they don't feel like they need to go somewhere else in order to have an effect on the world. Now, to contrast a fully homebrew campaign rather starkly, let's talk about scripted campaigns. The example that I'll be using for this, at least loosely, is Out of the Abyss. Out of the Abyss is a campaign book that is supposed to take a set of player characters from level 1 or 2 all the way up to level 15 with a singular contained story in the Underdark. Out of the Abyss has room for a game master to tweak different parts of it, but on the whole, it has a beginning, middle, and end. It has places where you need to go, it has events that are going to occur in the story one way or the other, and it's not entirely linear. There are some sandboxy elements where players can wander around and move freely in those spaces to progress the plot, but on the whole, it is straightforward. For the first half of the adventure, the players can't leave the Underdark. And in fact, 
the amount of resources that the players have is relatively low. As a GM, this is kind of nice in a lot of ways. You can put your own custom spin on certain parts of the adventure, but you don't have to make everything up on your own. If you're not sure about what to do, if you're not as good at improving, you can have a definitive guide that can give you some advice on how to proceed when the story comes to a lull. The plot points in Out of the Abyss can be established as some goalposts for your campaign. You're not going to have a whole lot of sessions spinning your wheels as the players try to make decisions, because there's a sense of urgency and it is tied to the plot and the script that is given to you. The downside of this is that it can again lead to a railroady feeling. And if your players try to improv too heavily, or try to make excuses for why they can go certain places that the book doesn't have answers for, you might be stuck in a tougher spot. Another hesitation that you might have with a pre-built campaign is that it is locked into a particular style of story. Out of the Abyss, for example, is kind of a survival horror story. I don't run it necessarily as harsh as that, because I'm a big softy of a GM, but there are some expectations that your players are going to have when you start to run out of the abyss. Or there are some expectations that you should try to establish with your players beforehand. Because if you get into the middle of a story and your players are disengaged with it, they just aren't having any fun, well, that's going to be really difficult for you to continue on. In a homebrew campaign, you have more flexibility to work around that, work with your players. I say more flexibility because at the end of the day, this is going to come down to your skills and your choices as a GM. You can hard pivot out of the Underdark. A friend of mine was running out of the Abyss, for example, and one of the random loot drops that he gave his players, just by rolling dice, was an Amulet of the Plains, which allowed them to go away from the Underdark. And he let them do it, because they decided they didn't want to be in the Underdark anymore. At that point, he went way off script and shifted into a more homebrew campaign. And that's an option that you can always have whether or not you're running a completely homebrew campaign to start, or if you have a script to start. You can run individual modules in your homebrew campaign. What I'm trying to get at here is that you have to explore your options when you are starting to set up a campaign. Figure out what your players want to do. If they have a particular story that they want to pursue, and that story can be served by a script that you add or change elements of, that can be really helpful. If you want to go a whole hog and write an entire new world for your players to run around in, that's also fine. For this campaign, I started naturally from the Plane Shift Kaladesh supplement, as well as the Kaladesh art book, which again, I cannot recommend enough for people who are interested in the lore and the world building of a particular plane. Go out and get these art books. They are so pretty and stuffed with all sorts of little character-based world-building goodness. Another example of something that works similarly to a plane shift supplement is the Eberron World Guide. These resources are something in between a scripted campaign and a homebrew campaign. They give you the ins and outs of a setting. I make the distinction between a setting and a scripted adventure because a scripted adventure has a plot line to follow, whereas a setting guide or a campaign guide gives you a bunch of options for a specific existing setting that you can then use to your liking. These serve as building blocks for you to make a plot within the world. 
A final note that I will caution for anybody who is building a world to any degree. As I've said before, the players are going to find holes in your plan. This is not a testament to whether or not your plan was good or bad. It is just that players are unpredictable because players are people. You have an idea of the personalities that are going to be sitting down at your table. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're playing with relative strangers or people who aren't used to playing games before. Either way, your players are going to surprise you. And that's awesome. Your goal as a GM is to take those surprises that they give you and incorporate them into the world. Your setting and your idea for your setting is going to be relatively static in your mind, or maybe have some moving parts that can be shifted around to respond to interaction. But as soon as the players show up, things are going to kick into high gear. Plots are going to go on, big decisions are going to be made that are meaningful and will change your world, inside and outside of the game. But more specifically, inside of the game. Your players might become best friends with an NPC, turning them into a staunch ally, or maybe they'll just kill him off, and all of the plot threads that were tied to him will fade away into the ether. Your job as a GM is to keep the world relatively consistent, and to translate the static idea of the world with all of its ideologies and pre-established notions into a living, breathing, interactive space that can house four or three to five rambunctious players. Let's talk a little bit more about your players and your world. I have a few bold statements that I'm going to put here for you, and I think they're pretty important to the core ethos of building a world for a tabletop RPG. Number one, the amount of work you put into your world is only as valuable as it can contribute to the game. If you come up with details about your world and they never come up in the game, that is, in my opinion, wasted time that you've spent designing this world. That sounds harsh, and it kinda is. This is a thing that I see a lot with world builders that are way more into the world building than they are about telling a story or presenting it for players. You have all these details about language systems and currencies, and I know I get on those every time that we talk about world building on this show, but I really feel strongly about it. These are neat things, and they're things that classic, classic fantasy writers like Tolkien used in excess because they were not meant to be used by other people. They were meant to be viewed by other people, but... They're really just interesting systems that are interesting because they intersect with this fictional culture that he's trying to bring to life. And bring to life in a more static sense. You can get a view for the politics between the elves and the dwarves in Lord of the Rings, but really it's kind of hard to insert yourself as a character and then also still care about the currency and language systems. You'll notice that in the Lord of the Rings movies, language only came up when it was super relevant to the plot. When there was a dwarvish word that could open a big door so that they could get into the dungeon. You can write out a whole system for conjugating dwarvish verbs, but if your players never want to conjugate a dwarvish verb, that's way too much time you're putting into a system that they're never going to see. Now the caveat to this is... Yes, at the end of the day, world building can be a cathartic experience for an individual. You can build this as deeply as you want. You can care about parts of this system that you 
feel strongly about or that you think are really cool. But if you're going to bring that into a game, if you're going to present it to other people to play around in as an interactive space, then you gotta narrow it down. You gotta figure out whether or not your players are going to care about this. If your players end up caring about Dwarven Conjugation, awesome, fantastic, that's not wasted time. But if you can look at yourself and say, nah, they're really not going to do this, then probably steer away from it. Work more on building up the people that they're going to talk to, the personalities at the heads of these civilizations that are dictating these big shifts and are going to set the tone for what your players encounter. And you can get in detail with systems that players interact with. Eberron, for example, has its whole system of dragon marks. This is a unique magical element to the setting, and it's something that the players and their characters can interact with a lot. Maybe their character has a dragon mark, maybe they're related to a particular noble house in Eberron. This is meaningful. This is impactful. That's why it's so detailed in the Eberron World Guide. Bullet point number two. As a reminder, your game is a collaborative effort between you and your players. And this is a point that I will concede depending on your DM style. But this is how I approach all of these tips and really how I approach the game in general. Some DMs like to kill their players. I got into this last time. Some DMs view this as an obstructive experience. And some players expect that out of their DMs. Totally fine. Understandable. Great. But if you're building a world for them, you have to accept that they are going to interact with this world at some point. If none of the NPCs want to talk to the players, I don't know why you put any NPCs in the room. Unless you have some weird avenue to get them to talk to the players at some point. Maybe the players need to make a lot of noise, or maybe they need to get somebody's attention. But if you stonewall them from that perspective, if you do everything in your power to have the world reject the players, then they're probably not going to have a great time. Or they are going to be led towards the idea that they should be killing everything that they see. Nobody likes us, nobody likes us, I'm going to eat some dirt and then kill all the people in your town. That's how players are going to react if you don't let them in. Third point, and finally, because of the two things that I've just established, the amount of work you put into your world is only as valuable as it can contribute to the game. Contributions to the game are super important. And your players have to be collaborators in making the game. Your player characters have to have some stake in the world, and the world should respond to them. I say your player characters have to have some stake in the world. What I actually mean by that is your players and their characters have to have some stake in the world. For the Kaladesh session, I got a little bit of a leg up on this because I let them pick which world they wanted to go to. They all unanimously said Kaladesh looks amazing, let's start there. That made my job really easy. <laughs> Most DMs don't do that. So what you have to do when you're presenting this world to your players is present it as early as possible. Talk to your players about your world and their place in it during character creation. Don't let them show up on day one with no idea what kind of world they're stepping into. Early and often, listen to them as they tell you what they like about the world. Because you can use that later on. As a DM, you're a sort of curator of all the different game elements that you can present to them. You select them from out of the various guides or your own notes, 
and you present them to the players with the intent of them having a good time. Or maybe scaring them a little bit, or maybe putting them through the ringer, but you are the curator of what you're presenting to your players. And it makes your job a lot easier if you listen to them when they tell you what they want. Players may gravitate to a certain race or class when they're generating their character. Tell them what they need to know about that class mechanically and also as it fits into the world, and then listen to them when they give you ideas about how they can fit into the world. Sometimes, particularly creative players can provide you with more set pieces. As they're crafting their own backstory, you should be taking notes. Take notes. Figure out details with them. If they have a huge two-page summary of everything that their character's ever done in their life, keep that. Laminate that thing. Take as much from them as they're willing to give you. By contrast, some players aren't as excited about the character-building aspects of it. They're a little bit more on the mechanical side. That's also okay. If you're not taking notes about a character, maybe take a couple notes about what the player responds strongly to. If they don't have an idea for their backstory, don't give them a whole lot of exposition, but do give them a couple of smaller options to say, oh, well, maybe you're a little bit more like this. Maybe you're a good character. Alignment's also really good for figuring out what kinds of scenarios to throw at players. The kinds of things that a player playing a neutral good character will respond well to are not necessarily the same things that a player playing a chaotic evil character will respond to. Not just in their reaction to a problem, but in the kinds of problems that they're willing to engage with in the first place. A chaotic evil character is not necessarily going to just botch a diplomacy mission, but a player that wants to play chaotic evil might not even engage with a diplomacy mission. They might say, this is boring, I'm going to go do a downtime activity. You don't want that. In general, players are going to care about different things in different amounts. Take notes all the time, listen to them, ask them questions, and then gauge their expectations when you are building the world. Okay, that was a lot of broad strokes expectations. Now I'd like to talk about specifically the way that I approached Kaladesh as a setting for my players. Again, the resources that I used for this were the Plane Shift Kaladesh Guide, which is very helpful for using Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition with the Kaladesh setting. But the kinds of advice that I'm going to be giving you here are not necessarily from that guide's perspective. The Plane Shift Guides are great for players who want to offer Kaladesh options when they're making their characters to their GM. The perspective that I'm going to take here is as a GM who needs to build a plot within the setting of Kaladesh, and how to use the different pieces of Kaladesh that the art book gives in order to craft that plot for my players. So when I approach Kaladesh as a setting, everything revolves around the city of Girapur. The events of Kaladesh block, both Kaladesh and Aether Revolt, are set almost entirely within Girapur. As a result, the art book has a lot of information about the different districts, and the politics and dynamics of the city, and not a whole lot about the outlying regions. Yeah, there's some information about Pima and Lathnu, but they're not nearly as detailed as even one corner of Girapur is detailed. So with that in mind, probably stick to the city if you're going to set a campaign on Kaladesh. 
Gearpour is actually a dream come true for a world builder. It's a relatively tight location that nevertheless has a diverse populace and well-defined regions. We'll get into those a little bit later, but well-defined regions is really useful when you're building a city for your players. They have some expectations about different resources that they can get in a city, and knowing those ahead of time can make it easier when a player says, I want this, to respond with, okay, you have to go here. Gearpur is so dense and detailed that you can set a full campaign specifically on Kaladesh, and I think you could rarely leave Gearpur. Well, that's well and good for a setting, but what about the plot? Fortunately, modern sets have a plot that go along with them. In this case, the Inventor's Fair is used as a backdrop plot for the more planeswalker and magic-specific elements of Kaladesh's story. But the Inventor's Fair is a fantastic unifying plot hook. Pretty much any character on Kaladesh has a reason to be at the Inventor's Fair one way or another. One of my characters, for example, is an artificer who is displaying one of his works at the Inventor's Fair. He's competing in the fair. Another one is less reputable and is trying to make some money at the Inventor's Fair by any means necessary. Another plot hook that you can start with as a building block on Kaladesh is the war between the Consulate and the Renegades. I love the conflict between the Consulate and the Renegades for Kaladesh because it is a typical story of oppressive government versus scrappy upstarts that can be twisted to suit any kind of party makeup. If your characters all lean one way in their faction alliance, then awesome, that's basically easy mode for you as a GM. If all of your characters are renegades, you can go and fight the consulate. The consulate's doing something bad. Maybe the actual plot of Kaladesh block plays out, minus some of the planeswalkers, because they're a little tough to navigate. But maybe you have a mission to try and take out a consulate cruiser, or infiltrate the bastion, or take over an ether reservoir. On the other hand, if you are a member of the consulate, maybe you are trying to keep the peace. Maybe the renegades are getting too rowdy and are blowing things up, and you're really not into that. Maybe your squad is a crack team of consulate defenders that have to go and make sure the inventor's fair goes off without a hitch. Sometimes, though, you will get a team of characters that straddles the line, that has some members that are more aligned with one faction and some members that are more aligned with another. This is an opportunity to create a more textured adventure, which is a polite way of saying that you have your work cut out for you. Your starting adventure should be a goal that brings your party together one way or another. If they're all aligned with the same faction, this is easy. They're all already going in the same direction. If they're not, you'd have to find a third party or some other neutral objective that would make these two disparate groups, or at least individual members of them, want to work together for a time. Also, you might have to play more to the characters in this case than to their factional identity. Sure, you might be a consulate guard, but maybe you have a strong sense of justice for the oppressed. There are some ways in which you can agree with an individual renegade who's also not too violent. Let's talk a little bit about the consulate and the renegades, and the kinds of characters and the backgrounds that are associated with them. On the consulate side, characters that are backed by the consulate are going to have some obligations to attend to wherever they are on Kaladesh. 
Characters that are backed by the consulate are going to be lawful in some way, whether they are personally sanctimonious or whether they have to go along with the law in order to continue getting the backing and their support. The bonus for them is that they will have access to consulate resources. The consulate controls the flow of ether on the plane, so if you are aligned with the consulate, you'll have a pretty steady ether supply. But the consulate is also a very rigid organization, and if you slip up, or cause some amount of damage, or step out of line, you might lose that backing. Some questions to ask a character or a player who wants to make a character within the consulate. Are they apprenticed to anyone? Consulate engineers are well-funded, but they have a rigid structure of how they do business. So is there maybe a master engineer that they answer to? Do they have a day job? Is there something that they have to attend to regularly? Are they beholden to anybody? Do they have a product that they have to make? And most specifically, and here's where you can get in on that little how can we align them with renegade sensibilities, how comfortable are they with the consulate's stance on political matters? Are they totally down with martial law, or are they, like, cool at all in any way? What's the breaking point where this particular character would stop supporting the consulate? Meanwhile, characters that are backed by the renegades are going to walk down the path that rocks! Unfortunately for them, their resources are a little bit more scattershot. The renegades aren't supported by the consulate, and they have to make do with what they can find. Or scrounge. Or steal. Luckily, you don't always have to worry about that, because the renegades are totally down with more unorthodox methods of resource scavenging. But that high reward path can have some pretty high risks associated with it. Some questions to ask a renegade character are stuff like, how did you fall in with the renegades? Did a family member lead you into it? Did you witness a particularly cool act of civil disobedience? Did the consulate come for you? What sorts of renegade operations have you participated in? Did you graffiti anything, or have you gone so far as to blow up a consulate cruiser? And similarly, how much and what types of resistance do they support? There are certain members of the renegades that go along with them because they hate consulate tyranny, but they don't support destruction of property or violence against members of the consulate. Are you one of those? Is there a limit to how much resistance you're going to take? Is there a thing that would stop you from supporting the renegades? Also, and this is the coolest part, does your renegade have a secret identity? A lot of the renegades support the consulate publicly in their public persona, but have a renegade identity that goes off and does illegal activity. This allows them to have some amount of consulate backing as long as they can keep their second life on the down low. Look your characters dead in the eye and ask them, how badly do you want to be the Batman? Don't ask them that. They're going to all want to be the Batman. You can't support a party of four Batmans. Batman? Batsman? We'll work on it. The next thing to think about when trying to integrate your player characters into the world is the races and classes that they have picked. We'll start with the races. Humans are... I'm sorry, guys. They're pretty boring. They're not the worst thing in the world, obviously, and a lot of players like having a character that they can identify with immediately just by virtue of being human. But they can do anything, and this gives us more of that choice paralysis that I mentioned before. They don't necessarily lend themselves well to any particular type of character style, but they can be used for any type of character style. So if you have an idea of what your character wants to do already, being a human is a totally valid choice. Let's get into some spicier stuff. Vidalkin. Most people recognize that Vidalkin are natural artificers. So if you're making an artificer character, 
that's a pretty good place to start. Especially if they're a little bit more logical, uptight, and more obsessed with the creation process than the political ramifications of it. What you might not know is that Vidalkin on Kaladesh have huge complex families with multiple spouses and all sorts of children running all over the place. That is what you can use to build plots around a character. Family is huge in character backstories. What kind of relationship do they have with their family? Maybe their elders. Do they have a spouse? Or in this case, spouses. Or kids. Usually, game masters only get one spouse to kidnap or cause conflict with or reveal that they're actually a villain the whole time. But with Vidalkin, you could have three! Next up are elves. Elves are a pretty classical fantasy race, but they get some neat perks on Kaladesh. Specifically, in the city of Giripur, elves are legally distinct from the other races. The consulate gives them a little bit of their own jurisdiction for settling criminal and legal disputes with elf matters. There's more details on this on the art book, but it gave me a fascinating in because I had an elvish character in my party. There are certain things that they can not necessarily get away with, but they have a different approach because their matters would be handled separately from the rest of the city. Next up are the dwarves. Dwarves are ingrained into the functions of the city. If you need a character that is tied directly to Giripur, a dwarf is a great choice. And you can give that character access to certain regions of the city or to the mechanics of the city. This is a better pick for consulate characters, but there are also renegade dwarves. Finally, we come to the Aetherborn, and I've saved them for last because they bring their story along with them. Aetherborn are not born, they are produced, ironically, from towering Aether refineries. And a very important part of every Aetherborn's life is that they know how long they have to live. And it's generally not very long. One of my players made an Aetherborn character, and I was thrilled because Aetherborn come with their own plot hook. They have an expiration date. Play into the drama of that. Figure out either with your player when their expiration date is, or maybe keep it a surprise. Actually, now that I think about it, you can't keep it a surprise from them. Their character is going to know how long they have to live, unless you want to have your own spicy little plot there. But I've kept it secret from the rest of the party. Next up, we're going to talk about classes, but I'm going to start from the perspective of magic. D&D has a bunch of established classes, but taking the magic creature types as an example for the range of characters that are on Kaladesh gives us a little bit more world-focused version of this. To start, there are obviously artificers. Artificers are the bread and butter of the people on Kaladesh. It is weirder to see fewer artificers in a room than non-artificers. There are a couple of options for a 5e campaign of providing an artificer character. Unearthed Arcana, which is a supplement that is on the D&D website, gave a version of a fully-fledged artificer base class, which was cool. It has a little bit of mechanics that need to be tweaked in order to really shine on its own. But it is an option, and it definitely feels specifically like an artificer. Weirdly enough, there are a handful of wizards on Kaladesh. Wizards in the Typeline. A lot of them are artificers and wizards at the same time, but this gives us an end to restructure a typical logically-based magic class like a wizard to reflect being an artificer. Instead of spells, maybe they have gadgets that they craft and have limited uses. 
For D&D specifically, there is another Unearthed Arcana subclass called the School of Invention, which doesn't necessarily feel exactly like a Kaladesh Artificer, but it does include the word Arcano-Mechanical Armor in its description, so I'm beholden to recommend it to you. It's frankly amazing. Next up are Rogues. Basically any renegade character can fit into a particular rogue archetype, whether it's a thief that is stealing ether or designs, or an assassin that is trying to work for the purposes of a crime lord, or just a good old-fashioned pirate. You could be a swashbuckler. There are pirates on this plane. Kaladesh is so cool. If you want a slightly more consulate-tinged version of the rogue, you can look into the setting of the Doomed. Doomed is a region of Bomat that is an underground network for consulate spies. For a more exotic character, you might consider being a druid. 99% of druids on Kaladesh are elves, and in fact, the plane shift guide suggests that all druids on Kaladesh are elves, but I maintain there are, in fact, human druids on Kaladesh, because there is a human druid card, and it is related to my favorite piece of the Kaladesh setting, Narnum House. We'll get to Narnum House in a little while. Narnum House, in short, is about poisonous flora, and if you want to be a druid character that is not necessarily a life-crafting elf, being a Narnum House druid and using the Circle of Spores subclass, also from our Unearthed Arcana, but it's going to be featured in the Ravnica campaign book, which I'm still excited about the fact that that exists, the Circle of Spores druid, instead of turning into an animal, can instead call upon the powers of Fungal Spores, which in this case could conceivably be reflavored to be poisonous flora that you keep on your person, or a woodworked mech, maybe. There are also some more typical combat options for your characters. There are plenty of warriors and soldiers on Kaladesh. Some of them are scrappers that just get in fights with their technology. Some of them are soldiers in the consulate army, members of the Bastion, or the Honorable is the fighting force. The Plane Shift supplement dissuades players from leaning towards more religious characters because Kaladesh doesn't have a whole lot of religion baked into its society. I think that's a little short-sighted, though, because of the way that you could reskin a class. And specifically, I would very much enjoy reskinning a paladin to not necessarily be indicative of a worshipper of a god that also happens to wear plate armor, but instead being a guardian of the peace on Kaladesh. Some sideways options that you have that are really more like backgrounds in a typical D&D sense. We talked about pirates a little bit. There is a pirate background that you can take in D&D, though there is a swashbuckler class available to you. One of the more Kaladesh-centric options is that of being a pilot. There are vehicles galore on Kaladesh. We all remember how they so wonderfully changed standard. And as such, you need pilots to pilot those vehicles. This is a very cool way to ingrain your character in the background of Kaladesh. Are you a racer that races for yourself? Are you with a team? Do you have consulate backing? Do you have a crime lord backing you? Do you race for money? Do you race for bets? Do you street race for glory? There's not a clear way to pick a background that suits a pilot. If you're a pilot of a bigger airship, there's a sailor background, but that's not exactly the same thing. As a GM, I suggest that you work with a player that really wants to be a vehicle pilot of some kind to come up with a cool set of skills that they have especially vehicle proficiency, because that's not always easy to get with your backgrounds. There are a couple of other neat things that you can take from the Kaladesh background 
to give your characters that little extra bit of spice that fits them into the world. The biggest thing that I can recommend to you is looking up the different kinds of artificer societies that are on Kaladesh. The Glint Sleeves, the Ground Grinders, the Malfists, the Life Crafters, these all have big splashy names and a central idea that they're built around. You can list them off to your players or give them some options, and I think they will go for one of them in particular. You can tell that a combat-oriented player will probably want to be a part of the Malfists if they're a part of a society. Life crafters are great for the more druidic or green-focused players. I also put Narnum House into this category because it is uniquely politically situated. It is not a consulate house. It is not necessarily a renegade house. We figured out that one of my characters in this campaign actually owes a bit of debt to Narnum House. Narnum House helped them get a leg up and get their name made as an artificer, and in return, this character carried out a political assassination for them, the details of which I'll leave scarce. But just having that little bit of backstory firmly characterized by the nature of an existing set piece in Kaladesh grounded the character in the world and gave him something to care about as we went forward. Other things that you can use to your advantage are Aetherborn Crime Rings, my Aetherborn character actually, by virtue of being a thief, had participated in some jobs for an Aetherborn crime lord. Lastly, I want to use Giripur as an example of how you can build out regions that will suit particular campaign styles. Giripur's diversity of environments makes it really nice for any kind of campaign that you want to set there. For a more sandboxy campaign, you can have all of the options at your disposal. But if you want a particular tinge, you can lead your characters to specific parts of the city and maybe have them walk through or pass by other parts of the city that don't fit your tone as well. To start, there's the region of Bomat. This is a coastal region that has shipyards, and most importantly, it has night markets. This is the grittier, noir part of the city that has Aetherborn crime lords and pop-up night markets selling illegal goods as well as the Dooned, if you want to have a more espionage-focused part of your campaign. Next up is the Cowl, and the Cowl is unique in Giripur because it is a wilder part of the setting. There are green belts scattered around the city that have some more lush terrain, some more natural, vibrant energy to it, but the Cowl is specifically an area of wilderness that is owned by a particularly eccentric landowner. The result is that you can use the Cowl as jungle terrain, that is unfriendly to the consulate. You can give your players an option. Yeah, you can escape from the consulate guards that are chasing you. You just have to go into the spider-infested wilderness. It can also be more useful if you want some more monstrous or combat-focused parts of your campaign without having to leave the city. Next up is Eleven Bridges. It is an urban transportation center, and more importantly, it can act as a hub place for your players to take downtime activities during your campaign. This is crucial for leveling up characters and also giving them access to more mundane resources. Where Bomat has night markets, this has a more traditional market. If you need to get mundane things like food and water or extra supplies, this is the place where you're going to send your team to go when they need to restock on healing potions, for example. Although here it might be ether-powered icy hot packs. I gotta work on that. Eleven Bridges is also home to The Bastion, which is a great final dungeon for a renegade-focused campaign when they want to take down a big military installation. 
Our next district is Emberall. This is the place that is colloquially known as the Sweatworks. This is a very chaotic setting and can be used for a weirder side adventure of some kind. If you need help from a lot of steadfast workers, then this is a great place to find it. But there are also flash art installations. There are gremlin hovels for a more traditional dungeon crawl. And there's something called the Thoptery, which I take as a challenge to make something that is just cool. Next up is Free Jam. And Free Jam is a great place to set aerial encounters. It has really high buildings and airships passing through all the time. This is also a nice place where you can station some renegade sensibilities. So if you have a renegade contact that your players need to meet, you can probably meet them safely in Free Jam. Next up is Giant's Walk. Giant's Walk is a region where giants just walk through sometimes. This is a gift that they've given to you as a GM. This is a super cool place to have weird encounters. I set an encounter here, and one of my players climbed up a giant and did a backflip off of it to get in a window. This is a character that could already fly, but chose to climb up a giant instead. Find the weird parts of whatever setting that you have. Give your players opportunities to just go nuts in them. Giant's Walk is a gift. Next up is Green Wheel, and this is a good hub when you have an elf in the party, and especially if you want to work in that elven politics side that I mentioned before. Then there's Kujar. Kujar is the high society district. It's got big fancy mansions and a secret socialite club. So if you want a diplomatic mission or something for the more charismatic members of the party to sneak their way through, charm, wine, and dine folks, this is a perfect region to set that. Oval Chase. Races, 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 races. Races. Car races. Go fast. High octane. One day at the races. You could have your characters bet on them. You could have a secret plot to bring down one of the racers. You could have your characters participate in the races. This is a uniquely Kaladesh part of the setting. Shyla's Claim is a little weird district. This is one of the parts that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to adventures. It's got a neat little history to it, but mostly it's useful as another renegade outpost. Oh, it also does have Narnum House in it, so for all my talk of saying that it didn't have anything interesting, if you have a campaign that involves Narnum House, go for it. Finally, we have Weldfast. Weldfast has an Aether Reservoir, which is great for a climactic final battle. Otherwise, it's good as a neutral engineering zone. If they need a particularly interesting part, and don't really have leanings one way or the other for consulate or renegade sensibilities, Weldfast is a pretty good setting for that. And that walks us through Kaladesh. Now, the way that I employed this isn't necessarily something that I can get into too deeply on this show because, again, it was tailored for my players. But I hope I've walked you through enough of my ideas and the way that I approach the different parts of the setting and the way that I ask my players questions that if you wanted to do this for your group, you could do the same. Once again, most importantly, I cannot stress this enough, at every point in your planning here, talk to your players. You don't have to give away all your big secrets, but ask them questions, get feedback from them, make sure that you are going in the direction that they generally expect. You can surprise them, but you don't want to surprise them by having a game that they don't want to play. That's not going to be good for either of you. Thank you for joining me on another D&D-focused episode of Talking Atlas. If you'd like to find me anywhere so you can give me all sorts of critique about how I'm DMing totally wrong, 
Well, you can keep it to yourself. But for the rest of you, you can find me anywhere you find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit, and... I will accept feedback, but you're not my players, so don't expect to get all the niceties that I'd give them. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Discord. The link to the Opal Nebula Discord will be in the description for today's episode. And it is the most direct line that you can get to talk to either myself or Bryce. Thank you all for joining me today. Have fun at the Inventors Fair, and don't eat too much cotton candy. It'll rot your teeth out. But until next time, happy planeswalking, everyone.